All right. It is always a privilege and an honor to stand in this pulpit and to uh, proclaim God's word. So, so happy for, uh, I'm actually excited. Maybe that's why I keep knocking over batteries and stuff. But uh, We'll be uh, in the book of James this morning. If you're following along in the, uh, the Pew Bible, it should be page 950. James is in the New Testament. Yeah, page 950 in the Pew Bibles. I'll give you some time uh, to turn there. So we'll be looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So 18 verses to cover this morning. And the title of this sermon is The Goodness of God in Bad Times. The goodness of God in bad times. So you should have it. And if you can, I ask that you stand and we'll read uh, God's word together. And it reads this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege, for the opportunity, Lord, to open up your word. For when your word is open, you speak. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, give us eyes to see. Soften our hearts. Make us ready to receive your word. And Lord, would you use me a weak vessel, 
But I pray that your grace, Lord, will be given to me to preach to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It was the year uh, 2017 when Arthur Wesley Davison lost her son to a drug overdose. As she shared her story, she recounted the hurt she experienced, the pain that she experienced. That hurt, that pain, turned to anger. Wesley Davison was angry because she felt powerless to destroy the grip that addiction had on her son. One psychologist defined anger in this way, as an emotion designed to change something. He goes on, he says, we get angry when we want someone to stop doing something or to start doing something. If we lived in a perfect world, there would be no need for us to express anger, right? Be no setbacks, no failures, no disappointments, no pain, no grief, therefore no anger. But the last time I checked, this world that we live in, it's not perfect, is it? It's broken. It's fallen. It's crooked. And it wasn't always this way. If you remember the creation account in Genesis, when God created this world, everything was perfect. At the end of creation, he says, behold, it is good. So how in the world did this world end up the way that it is today? Well, if you remember, humanity rebelled against God. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God's command. And that subjected this world to a, a curse by a holy God. So this physical world that we live in is living under a curse. So that's why we encounter trials and tribulations. That's why it's difficult to live in this world. When you encounter trials and tribulations, what is your heart's attitude? How do you respond? Are you tempted towards anger? Bitterness towards God? Brothers and sisters, I want us to have a right view of God this morning, even when we go through trials. I want us to see the goodness of God in bad times. And the main point I want to communicate to you from this passage in James is that God uses trials to test our faith, not tempt us to sin. However, we must have a right view of God and trust him in order for us to persevere through trials. So we'll be looking at the book of James. It's a short letter, consists of five chapters, but this letter is very significant and very applicable to us today. In the first chapter, James, he provides us with practical wisdom on how to navigate the trials of this life. We see in verse 1, it starts out with a greeting. James introduces himself. He's the author of this letter. He refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a servant of God is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is God. They're one. One thing you don't see in this, in this greeting in verse 1 is that James, he fails to mention that he's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's interesting. I don't know, if I was writing a letter and Christ was my brother, man, I might, that might be the first thing I put there. But I think James, I think what he's doing is showing humility. 
right? He recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ. Although they're related, he's still his servant. Christ is his master. Moving on, we see who James is writing this letter to. It says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, right? So James is writing to a Jewish, his audience is Jewish Christians that are living outside the promised land, outside of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the exact locations of these Jewish Christians. However, we do know that they're scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, and they belong to local congregations, local churches. Verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So obviously these Christians were going through difficult times, right? Difficult circumstances. If you've ever read the letter of James, right, you know that at this time, the poor were being mistreated by the rich, right? The rich were being treated with favor. The poor were oppressed by the rich. We see this in chapters two and five. Chapter three, we see that there was some, some issues of selfish ambition and, and envy. Anytime you have selfish ambition and envy, that's a recipe for all types of disorder, all types of quarreling. Chapter 4, we learn of some issues of pride and, and worldliness. These congregations also struggle with religious hypocrisy. And that's why in chapter 2 of James, James says, faith without works is dead, right? So I don't care what you claim to believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. If your life doesn't match that, if your works doesn't match that, James says your faith is dead and your faith can't save you. I once heard a pastor say that the majority of people on the day of judgment will miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the distance between your head and your heart. So if this knowledge that you claim to have about Jesus Christ, if it never reaches your heart and there's no true transformation, your faith is dead and it won't save you. But that's a whole nother sermon for another time. When you look at verse 2 on the surface level, it almost doesn't make sense. Like how in the world can we count it all joy when we experience trials of various kinds? How can we count it joy when we find ourselves suffering. But you see, this is the paradox of the Christian faith. The Christian is one who possesses joy in life no matter what they're going through. You see, because joy is predicated not on favorable circumstances, but the Christian's joy is predicated on the fact that we have union with Christ no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in. Christ is the source of our joy. His Holy Spirit produces this joy in our life. Moving on to verse 3, James, he reminds his audience that God actually has a purpose for the trials that they were experiencing. And just what is that purpose? Well, verse 3 states, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we see here that God uses trials to test our faith. And as our faith is tested, it produces steadfastness, or some translations say endurance. Endurance is the ability to persevere through suffering. God teaches us how to endure when we suffer. So the Christian life is one of endurance. It's one of perseverance. I work in the physical therapy field, and 
one thing I always tell my patients is, um, you know, because I only see most of the patients that I work with, I see them like twice a week. You know, they're seven days in a week, so for the other five days, they're kind of like on their own. And I always tell them that it is, it is imperative that you keep up with your exercise program daily. Because the more you exercise, it's a fact that it improves your strength. It improves your endurance. And I get it. Exercise can be vigorous at times. It can be grueling. It can be tough. But in a, as we exercise physically, our endurance improves. Well, it's the same way spiritually. Although trials be tough, although they be difficult, the more we go through, the more our spiritual endurance, it, it, it improves, it increases. So trials, they test our faith, and this produces endurance. But in verse 4, we see another purpose of these trials. We see trials mature our faith. It reads, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The goal of the Christian life is to reach full maturity in Christ. Now, none of us in this room have yet to reach full maturity. And I'm not saying that everybody in here is just spiritually immature. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that none of us have reached full maturity. Well, how do I know that? Because everybody in this room is alive, right? I hope there's no one in here that's dead. <laughs> Physically. Spiritually, too, but, um, yeah, we, this, this process of being fully mature, we don't reach full maturity until we arrive in glory with Christ, right? So it's a long process. So until that process is complete, we embrace our trials because we know that these trials test our faith. And as our faith is tested, it leads to endurance. And the more we endure, the more our faith Matures. You guys following along? Verse 5. You see, oftentimes when we're facing trials, we're left perplexed and, and confused. So the question that normally arises is, what will I do? How in the world will I get out of this difficult situation? So you know the one thing that's essential when we're going through, uh, going through trials is wisdom. We all need wisdom. Look at verse 5. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Biblically speaking, wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is the skill of applying that knowledge so that we might live a godly life under any circumstance. Where do you look for wisdom? I'm always concerned when, and I'm guilty of this too, where we always, we're quick to go to social media, the latest podcast, the latest self-help book, before going to God, the source of wisdom. Like, what can those other things tell you that God is, is not going to tell He's the source of wisdom, right? He's the all-wise God, creator God. And this gracious God, this all-knowing God has invited us to seek him for the wisdom that we need when we find ourselves in trials. And this thing, God never grows weary 
of us coming to him. Look, I'm human. If you keep asking me for stuff, look, I'm, I'm still a sinner, right? I'm not, sometimes I might get tired. That's just, but I'm not God. God never gets tired. He's never disappointed of us coming to him time and time again, asking him for the help that we need. Praise God. He's so patient. He's so gracious. He bears with us. So do me a favor. Today, whenever you're whenever you saying your prayers today, whether it's, whether it's right now, later this afternoon, this evening, whenever you pray, please seek God. Ask God for the wisdom that you need to navigate this life. Because this life is tough. And we all need wisdom. And that wisdom is not found in us. It's found in him. So take advantage of the access that we have. Moving on to verse 6. Now, when you go to God today, you must go to him in faith. You must go in faith. Look at verse 6. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Church, do you believe that God is all wise? Do you believe he knows what you need? Do you believe he's able to provide what you need? Do you believe he will provide what you need? To doubt God is the worst offense. Think about who God is. Think about his power. Think about his wisdom. Did someone give God counsel when he created the heavens and the earth? Did someone lend him some creative power to put the stars here, the sun? No. The answer to both of those questions, no. No one assisted God. Brothers and sisters, I'm calling you to trust God this morning. To not trust God is to be unstable in life. It leads to instability when you're going through difficult circumstances. Look at verses 7 and 8. It reads, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Jesus once gave an illustration of two men. One built his house using rock as a foundation. The other built his house using sand as a foundation. Storms come through. The house that was built on rock, it lasted. It withstood the storm. The house that was built on sand was destroyed. So it is with those that are double-minded. You will be destroyed because the foundation that you're building on is shaky. It will not last when the storms of life come. To be double-minded is to be divided between God and something else. To be double-minded is to say you believe in God, however, you fail to trust him when you find yourself in a trial. If you're a double-minded person, let me just say exactly what James says. You will receive nothing from the Lord. Nothing. Let's look at verses 9, and 11, uh, 9 through 11. Here James, he provides us with two examples. Right, sort of two illustrations of Christians facing trials. He mentions Christians uh, of low circumstances, or humble circumstances, Christians that are, are poor, that don't, have much re- that don't have many resources. But he also mentioned Christians who are, are rich and, and wealthy. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says this, Let the lowly brother boast in, in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will 
pass away. You see, there's a temptation that comes with not having many resources. And I think when you don't have much, it's easy to become bitter and angry. Poor people or, or those of, of low circumstances, lowly circumstances are often mistreated. They're often marginalized, looked over. And this could give way to sinful attitudes and, and behaviors. But here James instructs the poor to boast in his exaltation. What is, what is James getting at? You see, God is impartial. He doesn't show favor to the rich over the poor. He doesn't favor the poor over the rich. Everybody is the same before God. To God, the poor, to, 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 uh, the poor are invited to God's table, to his family, by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about that. A person that doesn't have much in this life, who's not valued, the creator of the universe invites him to a seat at the table. And again, that invitation is by grace, through faith, in Christ. And this should be cause for great joy for the poor. Right? Because they, they have value in God's eyes. They've been welcomed to the family. Moving on to the rich. He says that the rich should boast in his humiliation. You see, the temptation for the rich person is to, is to trust in their, their possessions. Right? And rich people have a lot of possessions. And it's always a great temptation to, to find your worth, your identity, and what you have. Verse 11 says this, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. You see, James, what he's doing here, as one commentator says, it says he's calling the rich to a posture of humility. You see, the rich Christian is saved, just like the poor Christian, by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The rich are totally dependent on the grace of God, just like the poor Christian. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. We're all dependent on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the rich, they're welcome to God's family, not because of what they have, but because God delights to save sinners, no matter if, if you're rich or you're poor. He delights to save sinners. And this should be a cause for great joy for those that are rich. So let me ask you this. Does the gospel bring you joy? Does your standing in God's family bring you joy? Or are you so concerned with your standing in society that you think nothing of the justifying blood of Jesus Christ? Oh, church, may we all be humbled by God's amazing grace and rejoice in it. Moving on to verse 12. James returns back to this theme of, of happiness and joy. Remember in verse 2, he says to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Oh, here in verse 12, he says this. Blessed is the man 
who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. One commentator defined blessedness in this way. He says, blessedness has to do with well-being in life that flows from the favorable position in which one is rightly related to God. In other words, those who are truly happy in this life are those who are rightly related to God. Well, how is one made right with God? It is through faith. It is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how one is made right. To trust in Christ is to be happy even when you find yourself suffering. And look, the one who trusts in Christ will persevere through, through trials and tribulations because genuine faith always perseveres because God is the one who is preserving that faith. You know, God promises a crown of life to the one who endures to the end. We like crowns, right? Like trophies, stuff like that? We all do. Jesus says something similar to the persecuted church in Smyrna in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to Jesus' words, talking about a crown of life. He says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, crowns in the ancient world were normally given to those who were victorious, maybe uh, victorious in a battle or in some type of athletic event. It signified victory. The last man standing is the one who is crowned. James is encouraging us this morning to run the race that God has set before us. I know it's tough. I get it. I know trials and tribulations. Look, it's tough living in this world. It really is. Remember, this world is broken. So right now, this morning, you might be here this morning, and you, depending on the severity of your trial, you might feel like giving up. You might feel like throwing in the towel. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you that God has promised eternal life to those who endure to the end. It is true that when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, eternal life is given to them right there right on the spot. But it is also true that we won't have the full realization of eternal life until we are face to face with God. Man, how special, how sweet will that be? But until that day, we continue to persevere. We continue to endure. Listen to what God says. He promises this crown of life to those who love him. So let me ask you this, and don't be so quick to answer this. Actually, it's going to be a rhetorical question, so if you do answer it, just keep it to yourself. But as you're thinking, do you love God? Do you love him? If you love God, you'll remain faithful to him. If you love God, you'll remain steadfast under trials. If you love God, you will continue to walk in obedience to him, no matter how difficult circumstances are. If you love God, you will continue to trust him. So let me ask you again, do you love him? You know, one of my greatest concerns, and not just for myself, but for all of us, 
is having the wrong view of God. I think we're all tempted to have this wrong view of God. So it's easy when you're standing on the mountaintop to say, you know, God is good. Yeah, surely God loves me. When everything is going right, when your kids are listening, your marriage is going well, you just got this promotion. When, when, it's, when there's no hiccups, no misfortunes, it's so easy to say that God is good and that he loves you. But let a misfortune happen. Let a little small hiccup, little wrench in your plans, and we're so tempted. We're always prone to think ill of God. We're always prone to doubt God. We're prone to question his goodness anytime we, we have to go through something difficult. We see this in, ver- we see this in verses uh, 13 through 16. Verse 13, it reads, it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It is true that trials are a great challenge to faith. Trials are like this great big roadblock to faith. They tempt us. They make us vulnerable to sin. Let's be clear, though. The temptation, as James says, it never comes from God. It never comes from him. Because God cannot be tempted with evil. God, in his holy character, does not have the capacity to sin. Let's just say God did have the capacity to sin. Don't you realize he would be no different than us? But the Bible says that he is different. He's the holy one. He's the righteous one, the transcendent one, the just one. And look, God does allow trials to happen. We see this in this passage. But this same God that allows trials to happen, he always provides the way of escape. Just see 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He always provides the way of escape. Brothers and sisters, it is our responsibility to take the way of escape and not give into temptation. It's our responsibility to continue to walk in obedience to God, even when it's difficult. When we give into temptation, we must never blame God. But we, may, we must take a long look in the mirror because we're the problem. Our heart is the problem. It's so easy to blame circumstances and and people. At the end of the day, you have to look in the mirror because you're the one who sinned. I'm the one who sinned. And we have to take responsibility. Look at verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Look, our flesh has this strong desire for things, for any sin that it thinks will satisfy it. And what do we always find out? Never satisfied. It wants more and more and more and more. Verse 15, it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Look, no one just wakes up one day and decides to commit adultery. No one just wakes up one day and decides to murder someone. No one just wakes up one day and decides to steal and kill. Brothers, it starts with the temptation, with the sinful desire. And if temptation is not checked, it will lead to sin. And sin will ultimately lead to death. 
because the wages of sin is death. Brothers and sisters, just like James says in verse 16, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You see, God uses trials to test our faith, not tempt us to sin. However, we must have a right view of God and trust him in order for us to persevere. So how do you view God in bad times? Do you think God is tempting you? Do you think God has evil intentions for you? As we look at these last two verses, verses 17 and 18, I think these two verses give us a right view of God. And this right view of God is not according to what we think or how we feel, but it is according to divine revelation, according to how God has revealed himself. And God, speaking through James, has revealed that he is good. We see that in verse 17. So we can, we can say that the right view of God sees God as being good. Verse 17 states, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Jesus, he once asked his disciples a series of questions. And I want to throw these same questions to us this morning. He asked this, he says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things? Family, we can be confident that God gives good, good and perfect gifts because he's good. He's the source of all good. Think about all the good things that you enjoy in life. Just take a, a mental note about all the good things that you enjoy. Things that bring you happiness and joy. Who is the one who gives you these things? Who's the one who has provided these things? Who, who's the one who has given you the grace to enjoy these things? Brothers and sisters, God is the chief good to be desired in this life. This is the point that James is trying to make here. God in his goodness can only provide that which is good. It's in his nature to be good. He can't be bad. He can't be evil. He can't be unrighteous. But on the other hand, the flip side, we're the evil ones. We're the unrighteous ones. We're the ones who give in, who are all often led away by our sinful desires. God is nothing like us, and Scripture is very clear about that. Who can we compare to him? Look, I want... I want you to see that we can always count on God to be who he is. We can always count on God to be good. Look at the second part of verse 17. It reads, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. God, good, his good character never changes. Look, seasons change. Day changes to night, back to day. People change. Feelings change. Elected officials change. But one truth that we can build our life on, and it is a solid foundation, and that is God never changes. 
He never changes. Real quick, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 32, real quick. And the reason I want to read this passage, I just want to continue driving home the goodness of God and his unchangeable character. Jeremiah chapter 32. And God is speaking to Jeremiah, and he's telling Jeremiah about this new covenant that he's going to make with his people. And if you know, we're actually living under this new covenant, right? Through the death of Jesus Christ, we are under this new covenant by God's grace. So this applies to us, right? But listen to the language. Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 38, it says this. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God has promised to always do good to us. And it is because he is good. He never changes. And we can always count on that. Now, you know, the majority of this passage, James has been talking about trials, right? Which lets us know that even as difficult as they are, even trials are considered as good gifts by God. God is always at work when we're suffering, brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul, he says something similar in Romans 5. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, do you count your trials to be a good gift? God? Are you able to see that God uses all things for the good of those who love him? Or do you only complain when you go through difficult things? So there's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. May we always bring our complaints to God, but we have no reason to complain about him because he's good. And he's been good to us. But you see, the greatest gift that God has provided his people is the good gift of salvation. Right? We see this in verse 18. It reads, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, with the, gift, uh, with the giving of any gift, you have a giver, you have a receiver, right? The, the giver just gives the gift. The receiver receives it with open hands. The person who's receiving the gift doesn't pay for it, doesn't try to, try to work for it. When we receive gifts, depending on what kind of gift we receive, that gift can quickly lose its, its newness. It gets old and then forgotten. 
But usually we tend to always remember and value gifts that are significant. Well, brothers and sisters, there is no greater gift, no gift of more significance than that of salvation. Salvation is a gift from God, a gift that he planned, a gift that he accomplished, and a gift that he has freely given to us this morning. Just how did God save us? How did God make us alive? Or like James says, how did he bring us forth? Well, if you're here for the first time, and let's say you're not a Christian, right? Maybe all of this talk about sin and salvation and righteousness, all of this stuff, Jesus, maybe this stuff is is foreign to you. Well, let me enlighten you. We, this whole human race, have been born into sin because of Adam and Eve, our first parents, because of their rebellion. Everyone who has been born since after them has, has took on a sinful nature. So we're born, we come into this world in rebellion against God. And that is our stance. We have an attitude of rebellion against God. We try to live by our own rules, our own authority. David put it this way in Psalm 51. He says, behold, I was brought forth, right? There's that word again, brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, because God is this holy God, this righteous God, this just God, he can't just sweep our sins under the rug. They must be dealt with. We must be punished. And God is well within his right if he wanted to, to send the whole human race to hell because this is what our sins deserve. I once heard the reality of hell defined in this way. As the absence of Jesus Christ, but the presence of God in just and righteous wrath. So, you know, we've been talking about God being good and, you know, we've been We've been so blessed to experience his goodness and the things that he's given us, things that he's allowed us to enjoy. But you see, those who will be placed in hell will be no more goodness, only his wrath. I mean, let that sink in. All the things that you enjoy in this life, no more. Only the wrath of an angry God. You know, I think think it's... On the one hand, I think it's difficult for us to fully grasp how good God is because there's really nothing to compare. In the same, in the same sense, I feel like it's, it's really difficult for us to fully grasp how bad hell is because it's nothing that we can really compare to it. The Bible describes hell in this way as a place of eternal fire, a place of unquenchable fire a place of torment and fire, a place of shame and everlasting contempt, a place of everlasting destruction, a lake of burning sulfur, a place where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, when the Bible associates hell with fire, I don't think we should take that in a a literal sense. I don't think hell is this place of of literal fire like you see in, in the movies. But we all know how bad fire is, right? If you've burned yourself, you know that's not a good feeling. My wife, at least once a week, it seemed like she burns herself in the kitchen when she's cooking. And that doesn't feel good, do it, sweetie. 
But she can cook, man. Praise God, she keeps persevering in the kitchen, and it's good. You know I love you, though. But I think when, when uh, the, the biblical writers refer to hell as this place of fire, I think that what they're doing is using symbolism. They're describing, they're using fire to describe the harsh, destructive reality of hell. You see, hell is the fate for all sinners, a place we are very much deserving of because of our sin. So how in the world is man made right with God? How can our sins be forgiven? How are we made alive? How are we saved? How can we avoid this terrible place of hell? Well, James says it was God's will that brought us forth. Remember, David said in Psalm 51, he was brought forth in iniquity, right? Meaning he was born in iniquity. Well, now James is saying God brought us forth, meaning he, we're born again. We were made alive. And look at the means that God used to make us alive. It says, through the word of truth. That phrase, word of truth, that simply describes the gospel message. What is the gospel? the good news that Christ Jesus has come to save sinners by laying down his life on the cross as a ransom for many. You see, our salvation has been accomplished by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as humans, we often fail when we're faced with temptation. Just look at, you can just look at biblical history. Look at the history of this world, right? Adam and Eve, they're placed in the garden. They're tempted by the serpent. What happened? They failed. The nation of Israel as a whole, tempted in the wilderness, they failed. Moses, he fails. King David, he fails. Look at your life. When you're faced with temptation, do you not fail? We're not perfect. We fail a lot. But look at Christ. He lived the perfect life. He never once committed a sin. Think about all that Christ suffered. The hostility, the mocking, the injustice, the physical torture. Ultimately, this Christ was put to death. However, he was raised from the dead. The father was pleased with the sacrifice of the son. And to testify to that, he raised him from the dead. And now this Jesus invites us all to turn from our sins and to turn in faith to Christ. Receive salvation. If you're not a Christian, look, it's being offered to you today as a gift. If you are a Christian, continue to drink from the well that is Christ. You see, because of Christ, we belong to God. Look at the last part of uh, verse 18. It states, it says, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If you remember, under the Mosaic law or the Old Covenant, the people of Israel were commanded to give of the first fruit of the good land that God promised the people. So as God promised to bring the people into the land of Canaan, the people were to offer the first fruits back to God. In this act of worship, it recognized God's goodness and his faithfulness to keeping his promise. Well, brothers and sisters, in a similar way, we recognize 
We give, up, we give ourselves to God, recognizing God's goodness, his faithfulness in saving us. We've been set apart for him to do his work. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works. Our whole life must be lived in a way that gives God the glory. Yes, it is true that trials, that trials pose a challenge to living a godly life. But brothers and sisters, because we belong to God, we must persevere. We will persevere. But we do that by having a right view of God. And remember, having a right view of God sees God as being good. And it sees God as providing a good gift of salvation. I want to close with sharing this story with you. It's about one of God's faithful missionaries. His name is Alan Gardner. And Mr. Gardner experienced many physical difficulties and hardships throughout his service to Christ. Now, despite all that he endured, right, despite his troubles, he said this, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. In 1851, Mr. Gardner, he died at the age of 57. He died of disease and starvation while he was serving in, in South America. Near his body lay his, his journal. And in it, he recorded all the nights and days he struggled with hunger, thirst, his wounds, his loneliness. But the last entry in his book, which, could, which was barely legible, uh, legible, it says this. This is what he says. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, may you be overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God as you encounter trials of various kinds. I think one songwriter, he said it best when he penned these words. He says, may your struggles keep you near the cross and may your troubles show that you need God and may your battles in the way they should and may your bad days prove that God is good. May your whole life prove Hey God, it's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good, for being so kind. Father, I pray, Lord, that by your grace, you would always give us a right view of who you are. Father, help us to see your glory in any circumstance, for you are truly good. And you never change. So Lord, help us to build our life on a solid foundation that is Christ Jesus. Because it is through Christ we experience the fullness of your goodness. So we thank you. We praise the Savior today. We thank you for the fact that our sins have been forgiven. And that we stand in a right relationship with you. So God, continue to be with us. Give us the grace needed to persevere through the trials that we face in this life. And may our whole life prove that you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.